Should we pray for you, Brian, before, uh, before we get started? That would be, that would be good, good, wouldn't it? Rob. Thank you very much. Father God, I thank you for this great man of God that you've given us here. And I thank you for the words and the message that you've put on his heart to share with us this morning. Lord, I pray that, that you would anoint the words as they come out of his mouth, that they would be your words, not Brian's words that come out, that would be a word in season for us, a word to challenge us, a word to encourage us, a word that would plant seeds deep in our hearts and that would bear fruit today. Lord, we pray for our hearts as well, that they would be receptive to those seeds and to what your spirit wants to do through Brian this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Paul, writing to the Galatians, says this in chapter 4 and verse 19. He says, My dear children, I feel as if I'm going through labor pains for you again, and they, are, they will continue until Christ is fully developed in your lives. Until Christ is fully developed in your lives. If you were in the prayer meeting this morning, there were, some of us were there, and it's a good meeting. I mean, it's worth coming to. <laughs> and uh, it, it often lays the ground in one way or another for the preaching and for the content of the service even. And uh, this morning, one word struck me. It was marinate. Where are you? The lady? You're over there, Jules, aren't you? Yeah, there you are. Marinate. Marinate. You know what marinate is, don't you? Do you know what? Uh, if you're a cook, you know what a marinate is, don't, or to marinate something. It, uh, to the best of my knowledge, as a man who doesn't really well, cook a bit, but not, marinate is to place something in some sort of sauce or, or whatever so that it stays there, and sometimes it's heated, I think, and it, it simmers away for a long, long time. And let's say it's a joint, it absorbs all that's being put in, doesn't it? It absorbs, it absorbs it. And the longer you marinate it, perhaps the better it is. And you know, that for me was, I, I wondered how I was going to start this morning. Don't always know. But that was it, marinate. Marinate. Because that's what I want to talk to you about, that Christ being formed in us is like from the day that we're born again, an ongoing, continuous, non-stop marination, if that's the right word. Marination. Struggling with a bit with the cookery, but marination. And when we come to Christ, that's what actually starts to happen. And we can aid or we can hinder that process. It's, dis it's not dissimilar. In fact, it's probably the same as osmosis, isn't it, James? If you hear last week, James preached on osmosis and then reverse osmosis. Now, osmosis is actually the transformation from one into another, really, isn't it? And uh, it's the same thought. We start off out of Christ, we're in Christ, and a process begins. And that's what Paul's talking about here. Because he says, my dear children, I feel as I'm going through labor pains. Why is he going through labor pains? Because it was through him that they, the Galatians had heard the gospel. And because they, having started to marinate, had stopped marinating, and uh, if you like, they were going backwards in the wrong way. They were going back into where they were 
which was all under law and everything else and their old ways, and they were not enjoying the freedom that Christ has made available to them. See, Paul had a very deep parental concern for the new Christians. If you're a parent and you've just had your child, or some of you are expecting a child, and, and that's, I, I, I tell you, the first three or four weeks of your life, you'll think you're never going to look after anything else except this little piece of humanity. The whole of life circulates around. It's true, isn't it, people? And, and, and uh, they kind of take over your life, but they should, because they're the center of your love and attention and, and so on. And it's what you've been waiting for. I'm sorry. For nine months, it kind of marinates inside you, doesn't it? If that's the right way of putting it. Not a very medical term, that, I don't think. But marinates inside you until it reaches its peak of perfection. And then, with something of a struggle, it appears. And it's delightful. And we rejoice. And as a church, we rejoice. We rejoice when we hear someone's going to have a child. And we rejoice in the process. And we rejoice that, actually, when that child comes into being. And, uh, and better still, when we stand here as a church and stand around them and, and pledge our love and support to both the child and the family as we dedicate both family and child to God. And so the, these are, you can understand Paul's parental concern. He's brought this Galatian church, as it were, into being. He thought he got it going well. He went off to do other work. And then he gets the news that it's going into reverse and he's very concerned about it as we would be concerned about a child that became ill in the early stages of its life or indeed at any stage of your child's life you know for we who are parents our children are always our children whatever age they are and uh, and so we have that parental concern and God has a parental concern for you and me why is he called father he's called father because he has parental concern and parental responsibility for us in that sense. And when he saw the whole thing going wrong, he went to the outer extremity in the Lord Jesus to pull it all back. So, that's our theme for this morning. In the, um, at the time of the charismatic renewal, which uh, is history to a degree now, the charismatic renewal came into being probably in the late 60s, into the 1970s. And at the time, it was a revolutionary thing that was happening in the traditional churches. The Pentecostal churches have been around since the beginning of the century. This church has been around since um, 1928 as a Pentecostal church, who were enjoying the things of the Spirit, the things that we still enjoy today. And... Uh, so they'd had it, but the mainstream churches had not embraced any of that. In fact, they regarded early Pentecostalism as a sect, to be equated with Jehovah's Witnesses and people like that. So we were suspect. Actually, we were suspect for a good reason, because we got life and some of, most of them hadn't. But um, that, that early thrust of, it, of the Pentecostal churches was, was still there, but perhaps even that had begun to wane a bit. And certainly in the main churches, we'd never even really encountered it. And so something tremendous was happening then. And some of us, I got caught up in that. And uh, that's how I came to be baptized in the Holy Spirit eventually uh, and to begin to enter into the things of Pentecost, the things of the Holy Ghost, and so on and so forth. And, 
So that was a transforming moment in my life. I'd been born again many years before. But this was another transition moment, another evolving moment, if you like, another developing moment, um, a very significant moment in, in my Christian life. At the time, um, because it was unpopular to be charismatic, which was a general term for that which is Pentecostal, at the time, many just withdrew from their traditional churches and formed house churches. They met in homes. They met in each other's lounges, front rooms, or whatever. They met wherever they could, in small groups, which is, in fact, highly biblical. As far as I can see, for about the first 300 years, that's how the church conducted its life. It did not have big meetings. Perhaps they did in some places, but... Um, Throughout that time, mainly it was within homes. You weren't allowed. The Roman Empire did not allow you to have meeting houses of any kind. They would have called them temples. The Jewish temple was demolished in AD 70, something like that. It was, of course, there were synagogues around. We'd have to say that across the ancient world. And often Paul went to the synagogue where he could find people who he could appeal to with the gospel and, and explain that how Christ was the Messiah anticipated in the Old Testament had now come and all of that. My point is this. The early church met in houses, in small groups. It was, if you like, um, it was an embryonic pattern that the churches of the 1970s started to follow again. Wesley had done it a bit during the great Wesley revivals. He had house meetings, and uh, he was not allowed to preach in the Anglican churches, he had to preach in the open air, he gathered groups together in their little cottages, and that was church, it was, ch to use this, it was church, but perhaps not as we know it, or we needed to rediscover it, you know, it was small groups of people who loved the Lord, and who had a passion for sharing Christ. I've just come back from two weeks in Cornwall, and um, one of the things I discovered while I was there, the massive influence of Methodism. Um, Charles Wesley went in the mid-1700s, uh, uh, Charles who wrote the hymns, and he went first, pioneered the way, then um, John Wesley, the great evangelist, followed after him. A and the growth of Methodism in that part of the country was phenomenal. Not be, the churches opposed it, of course. But the, the groups formed their own groups. Bible groups, Bible classes, they called them. Sometimes he, um, all kinds of names for these small groups meeting together. And they embraced the gospel in a new way. And the thing took off. The growth was phenomenal. Um, from 0 to 83% of, of uh, the parishes in... in uh, of that area, of, of, um, I mean, of Cornwall and, and perhaps Devon, um, from about a few parishes that had a bit of life, it went up to about 83% at its peak, where Methodism and the gospel had penetrated, and it was flourishing. Sadly, that's not quite so true today. My point is this, that the early church met together. Let's, from Acts chapter 2 and verse 46, every day... This is in, within days of Pentecost. Every day they met together in the temple courts. There were 
3,000 plus believers by that time. That was growth. They broke bread in their homes. That means to say they not only shared meals together, they broke bread as we break it here in terms of communion and remembering the Lord Jesus. It says that they were glad. They had sincere hearts. Good sign for a church, isn't it? To be joyful and have sincere hearts. Praising God, that's good as well. And enjoying the favor of all the people and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The favor of all the people. What an impact it was making. Not because perhaps there were 3,000, that was impressive if they all came together in the, in the temple. That must have been a massive attraction. But everyday life went on. So, what did the people see? Not just a big meeting. They saw people who they knew in their everyday lives who had once been following the Jewish way of religion suddenly embracing a new concept of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. A whole new approach. And they saw the difference that it made to their lives. And that effect went on across the ancient world as people observed the people of what they, they in those called, days called the way. Not Christians. It says that we were first called Christians somewhere. I forget where it was. But anyway. But they were called the people of the way. That means, I think, the way of life that they embraced. The difference that Christ had made to them. The love that they saw evident in a world that was not a very lovely world at all. It was a rather world very similar to today. It was full of corruption. It was full of everything that is still around. Uh, but in that darkness, they shone like lights. They were the expression of Christ in the world where they lived. And that's where we should be today. Regroup when I... So out of that, what do we see? Out of that darkness, there was light shining. Another word for light shining out of darkness is radiant, isn't it? We have declared ourselves to be, it's not up today, a radiant church. At the back. Should have had it at the front today, but never mind. <laughs> Go and all look at it. A ra that's what we declare ourselves to be. That's our ambition. That's our desire. Because we believe that's what God wants us to be, doesn't he? He wants us to be individually shining lights. He wants us as small groups to be shining lights. And he wants us as a whole congregation to be a blazing light, if you like, a searchlight, swinging around Tunbridge Wells, as it were. Can you imagine that? TWCF, perched on the highest piece of the, of the land, and a great lighthouse with TWCF on it, and the great beam sweeping the town at regular intervals. That would be a great concept, wouldn't it? Shall we build one? Well, nobody said yes, did they? But keep it in your mind's eye. That's what we're meant to be, a radiant church. And I think we are a radiant church. I think there's much going for us. We must never settle down and be self-satisfied. That would be a very wrong thing to do. But when I look around here, I do see a radiant people. Are these people who are enthusiastic for the gospel? People whose lives demonstrate Christ? People who are just full of love and kindness towards one another? That's what I see. That's what we experience.
And that's who we are. We probably don't always get it right. But who of us does? And that's true of us individually, and it's true of us collectively. We may not always get it right, but the light keeps shining, doesn't it? You know? If you like, if we were 100 people and 10% of us and the lights were not shining very brightly, it wouldn't make a lot of difference, would it? We'd see little pops into darkness. We must be careful that we keep all the lights shining, though, mustn't we? That's an ongoing process. It is this process of Christ being formed in us. It's Christ in us that generates the light. The work of the Holy Spirit in us that generates that light within us. We cannot generate it of ourselves, but we can engage with it. We can, if you like, I'm going to stick with this word marinate. We can allow ourselves daily to marinate in Christ. How do we do that? As often as we have the opportunity, as it were, (coughs) to relate with him, talk to him throughout the day, share our life with him. Your prayer time does not have to be restricted to whatever time you allocate for it or length or whatever. You can talk to him on and off all day long in that sense, marinate in his presence because he is with you. He's with you when it's going well and he's with you when it's going badly, right? He's with you when the enemy comes in on the attack. He's with you when blessing flows, more obviously then. But he is with us all the time and faster than you can operate your mobile phone, you can talk to him. Of course, if... When you speak to your mobile phone, that's pretty instant, isn't it? But having said that, he's there. Morning, noon, night, 24-7 God. Therefore, let's soak in him. All day long. You might have times when we're soaking sessions, but nevertheless, let's soak in him as often as we think about him, as often as we um, need to, and we need to really 24-7. Because the more we do, the more we are like him, or will become like him. In that early church, people were being drawn to the church. They were being born again in the church. They were being filled with the Holy Spirit. It all happened very fast. You got saved, you got baptized by immersion, and you got filled with the Holy Spirit all virtually in one go. That was a pretty tough We've chopped it up a bit, but it shouldn't really be. If someone gets saved here this morning, we should be urging them to be baptized in water as soon as possible, and we should be praying for them there and then to be filled with the Holy Spirit. (coughs) Excuse me. See, that being born again is really like a spiritual moment of conception, isn't it? And so as in the child, from the dot that is conceived, that tiny dot, packed full of all the information necessary to construct a human being. That potential is in us from the moment we're born again. That moment of new birth, we've (coughs) sometimes edged away more in recent times from from talking using that term, born again. Stuart, there's some water down there for me. Just in that mug. (coughs) We've... um, (laughs) Thank you very much. Excuse me.
Let's, uh, <clears throat> let's listen to what Paul says. No, sorry, Peter says. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. It starts straight away. No pause. Into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance, something which is already there, deposited, ready for us to take possession of, into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. That is the real deal. Okay? When you become a Christian, that's the real deal. You, you take time to sit and, if you like, marinate on that verse. Don't make the mistake sometimes of reading a great chunk of scripture and thinking, right, I've done that for the day. Good, done my bit. Much better to take one verse, two verses, a verse that actually grabs you and let it marinate, let it sink into you, squeeze every last drop out of the orange, so to speak, until you've absorbed it, until you've taken it in, until it's become part of you. Can never perish, spoil, or fade. That inheritance is always going to be there. I tell you, if we draw on that inheritance for the rest of our natural lives, when we get to the day we go to heaven, we'll only enter into the fullness of it then. We'll discover how much we didn't have. Yeah? But I want as much as I can in this life, don't you? I want to marinate. This could become the marinate Christian center, couldn't it? That's an aside. Do you like the idea, Pastor? <laughs> anyway. That's another illustration. Just hold in your mind, just to help you keep this in your minds in, in the days to come, hopefully. Hold in your mind those amazing photographs, those scans that we get of babies still in the womb. Right? I think when... I think when uh, Sue and I have Wendy, I don't think, I don't ever remember seeing scans or pictures then. If they did, they were very muzzy and fuzzy and, uh, no, I don't remember seeing those. But today, it's thrilling, isn't it? And you look at the monitor and you can see the little child and you can see the heart beating and the arms and legs and it's all coming together. Wonderful. And that's what should be happening in our spiritual life. You're not going to finish up uh, like God's Superman and won't go. But you, if you tucked in there, if you like, in the early days, within the womb of the church even, for a newborn Christian, as your brothers and sisters kind of encourage you and feed you and instruct you and help you and guide you and pray for you and, and remind you that God is a God of grace and mercy. Well, the enemy's trying to bang you into the ground on some issue. Remember, he's, he's a God of grace and mercy. Abundant, excessive. That's it. He does nothing, nothing better than to forgive. Forgiveness, full and free. We were singing on the screen just now. Absolutely. F the, the forgiveness which is ours. I thank God for his forgiveness. I wouldn't stand here this morning if it were not for that. Hold that picture, that tiny dot. In, in Galatians and if you remember, uh, I think it was about 18 months ago, we did a series on Galatians. You led us through a series, Stuart. And uh, 
and I've been looking at some of that again. That was brilliant. And, uh, but here, here in this Galatians, in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 16, Paul talks about Christ being revealed to him. That's where it started. Being revealed to him. And then he talks about it being revealed in him. So he saw it. He, he began to grasp it. I think in a funny sort of way on the road to Damascus, he, he, he was beginning to grasp what was going on. I don't think this was a... We talk about the, the road to Damascus being a sudden event like that. I think because he had been an arch enemy of the Christian faith, he'd taken the time to study the Christian faith, and the more he studied it, the more he became convicted that it was right. But for a while, that made him even crosser. Then he comes to this moment, and, and actually, he's confronted by the Lord Jesus on the road and in a dramatic way, and it was that moment of crisis, and he surrenders all in that moment. Yeah? Such an important moment. He records it. He testifies to it in, in the Acts of the Apostles at least twice. We get an account of it, and then at least twice in his defense before Roman authorities or Jewish authorities, he tells them the story again, because it's such an important story. It's how he became a Christian. That's the best story we can ever tell to people. Don't get bogged down in theology. Just tell God, tell people what God did for you. How he changed you, transformed you, and how he's still transforming you as you marinate. So, he talks about to him, in him, and then in Galatians 2 and verse 20, he says, Christ living in him. He's, he's really got it now, hasn't he? Christ is there, ever, living, remaining, not departing. And then chapter 4, the verse we're preaching from, verse 19, he talks about Christ being formed in him and in us. And that's the whole ambition of the apostle, that Christ should not just, you should not just be born again, but that Christ begins to be formed in you and in me until we reach a fullness in God that is beyond our original conception of what is possible. See, there is a progression, a development, a maturing which is ongoing throughout our Christian lives. We are, in effect, always a work in progress. You know what that is, don't you? A work in progress. And God watches that work in progress, and he encourages that work in progress. And we should encourage each other, especially when the work in progress hits a rough patch, or when the going gets tough. Mind you, I always like the phrase, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. And there's nothing like a bit of opposition to really actually make you dig deeper. Yeah? Make you call on God more. His resources are abundant. Abundant. That progression, a work in progress. The theological term is sanctification. It simply means becoming more like Jesus. An ongoing progress. So the plan set out in... The plan for all of that is in Galatians 5, verse 22, where we read familiar words for us. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It takes a lifetime for those things to develop in us. If you say to me this morning, I've got it all, I wonder. I think most of us have got chunks of it. But in every single one of those areas, there's room for improvement, is there not? 
And there's always going to be room for improvement because we're never going to be perfect till we get to heaven. We're a work in progress. Sometimes some of these things get knocked back. But we shouldn't just ignore it. Go back, develop again. Classic one, of course, is patience, isn't it? You know, Lord, I prayed for more patience and life got really hard. <laughs> you know? He says, well, you prayed it. I'm going to provoke it. I'm going to put the circumstances before you whereby you are going to have to develop the things that need to develop to enable you to carry on in your Christian life. Some of the, some of the challenge is tough. But it's a template. That, those verses are a template for us to aspire to. Or to put it another way, desire to be like Jesus. Somebody once said, the only portrait of Jesus we have is in those verses. That's who he was when you read them, put that all together. See, how are not yet Christians to see and discover Jesus? See, God's plan is for them to see him in us. Right? The old, the old song comes back, he has no hands but our hands to do his work today. He has no feet but our feet to walk the disciples' way. It's down to us, beloved. It is down to us. He's committed that responsibility to share the gospel, and not just to share the gospel, but to encourage one another in the Christian walk every day, as often as we have opportunity. Apostle says somewhere, as often as you have opportunity, do good, first of all, to the church of God. You know? Be good to one another. And when we're good to one another, we will be good to the world outside. And our light will shine. See, Christ is being formed in us. His character, his personality, his nature should be growing in us, flowing from us, radiating from us. Psalm 50 and verse 2 says, Out of Zion, that's an old Testament word for the church, out of Zion, God shines forth. Yeah? Out of us. He shines out of, all, he shines out of his creation. He shines from the skies above us, especially at night. He's, you know, all those, but most of all, he shines out of us because we have the power of speech. We have the power of love and care and compassion. That's who we should. The more we become like it, the more evident it is, then the more it will touch the lives of people around us. The worst thing we could possibly do would be to preach it and not practice it. And sadly, often the church has been labelled hypocrites in lots of areas. And Jesus had to label religious people in his time as hypocrites because they taught it, but they didn't live it. We've got to live it, not just preach it, which puts a big pressure on those of us who get up here and, if you like, talk about it, but we've got to live it. You know, if, if your closest friend was honest and described your character to someone else, what would come first, do you think? What would be the first five things they said about you? Someone who really knew you well. I read that um, a very well-known Christian, national Christian leader, his best friend was coming to see him, and he arrived before he got home, and the best friend was sitting chatting to his wife and uh, having coffee with her, and he said to her, um, the usual thing, how's he doing? 
She replied, oh, in a word, grumpy as always. Interesting, that, isn't it? You see, the image is one thing, but grumpy as always. I wonder what you would say about me, but please don't tell me till afterwards. <laughs> then you can come and tell me what you like. You do wonder that. It's a question to face, isn't it? So, pause for thought. Like I said earlier, we're a work in progress. And I confess that after 63 years as a Christian, I was 13 when I became a Christian, I feel that I have a mega long way still to go. You know? And I'm not going to give up. Because, you know, um, one of the old hymns, to serve him to the end, and that's our ambition, isn't it? So I'm encouraged with Paul's words towards the end of his life and in Philippians when he says this, and it's very familiar words. From Philippians 3 and verse 10 to 14, this is from the Living Bible. He says, Now, I have given up everything else, I have found it to be the only real way to know Christ and to experience the mighty power that brought him back to life again and to find out what it means to suffer and to die with him. So, whatever it takes, I will be one who lives in the newness of life of those who are alive from the dead, which is all who are born again. He says, I don't mean to say I'm perfect. I haven't learned it all. I should even yet. I haven't learned it all even yet. But I keep working towards that day when I will finally be all that Christ saved me for and wants me to be. Dear brothers and sisters, he says, I am still not all I should be. This is a man who's at the end of his, heading close to the end of his Christian life. This is a man who's stormed across the ancient world. This is a man who's founded churches. This is a man who's written letters and, and theological Romans. and You know, he's, he's a giant. But he says this, I'm not all that I should be, but I am bringing all my energies to bear on this one thing forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead, I strain to reach the end of the race and receive the prize for which Christ is calling us up to heaven because of what Christ Jesus did for us. What is that prize? It is the fullness of the inheritance that God has made available to us. Yeah. I came across this quote, and with this I finish. God, by his spirit, inhabits each individual Christian, thereby imparting the character of Christ to the individual. And then it says this, It is equally true that God dwells in the assembly of believers, that's us, and hence the assembly 
must also radiate Christ collectively. So we have it. The formula for a radiant church is a radiant people. And a radiant people will produce a radiant church. And people will start taking notice. Where you work, where you live, where we worship, with the things we engage in, let's ensure that we radiate as often and as God, well, we should radiate all the time. To that wonderful moment when people say and have said, so, what, what's, what's that about you that makes you different? Well, that's the opportunity to tell them. God bless you. Thank you for listening.